CCE is a process, is a methodology, but I think the core of it that we're trying to get at is we're trying to actually change how people think about cybersecurity. Hey everyone, this is the Industrial Security Podcast, and my name is Nate Nelson. I'm here with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He is going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Sarah Freeman. She is an industrial control system cybersecurity analyst at Idaho National Labs, and she is the co-author of Countering Cyber Sabotage, Introducing Consequence-Driven Cyber-Informed Engineering. And the topic is her new book and the CCE methodology. Then without further ado, here's you and Sarah. Hello, Sarah, and uh, thank you for joining us on the on the podcast. Um, I know that uh, you know we had your colleague uh, Andrew Bachman on, your co-author, uh, talking about what was coming in the the CCE book. Uh, this was a year ago, and I'm delighted to have you on now to sort of uh, show the other side of the coin. Now that the book is out, let's talk about what what you actually produced in the book. Before we start, though, um, can we? Uh, can you give us a little background about yourself and, you know, you're at Idaho National Labs, a little bit about the labs as well. Sure. And thank you so much for having me. Um, I am an industrial control systems cybersecurity analyst at the laboratory, uh, where I've worked for the last eight years. Um, before that, I worked in actually a lot of uh, financial services, cybersecurity and threat intelligence. Um, so I have more than 10 years, uh, approaching 12 years experience in this field. Um, which is a, a little bit of a nuanced area. Um, that being said, highly applicable to the book, Consequence-Driven Cyber-Informed Engineering, and very important to the general process. Um, the book, as you mentioned, has been a long time coming. It's a, it's a really a, been a collaborative effort. I think that's part of the reason why it took us so long to get through it. So there's a lot of, um, it's, it's something we've been working on for a very, very long time, probably close to five years. Uh, and even in the early days, um, just the number of people that invested their time in it is really quite substantial. But it does line very well with the general strategy and vision of Idaho National Laboratory, which does have a major focus on um, securing industrial control systems and critical infrastructure collectively. And so in some ways, CCE is part of a broader portfolio of programs and projects that aim to do just that in part through research, um, industry engagement, and general increasing situational awareness for people in the field. If I remember correctly, we've had on already multiple guests from Idaho National Labs. Andrew, how big is their operation over there? Is it just luck or do they just have a lot of people? No, they. it's a very big operation. I mean, I mean, these folks run their own experimental nuclear generator. They run their own power grid. Um, you know, they do a lot of electric system research. Um, they run, you know, what used to be called, I forget what it's called now, but it used to be called the Industrial Control System uh, Cyber Emergency Response Team, the ICS CERT for, you know, under contract to the Department of Homeland Security. They do security assessments on industrial sites for the Department of Homeland Security, um, you know, and others who are, are requesting it. They uh, they have the, the flyaway teams when there's an industrial incident, you know, they, they pack up their equipment, they get on the the planes they they go and investigate the equipment you know i i don't know what the number is but it you know it feels like at least a couple of hundred phds uh, it's a it's a very big operation 
So the book has been available on Amazon, at least in electronic form, for uh, a couple of weeks. I know what, when I discovered it there, I, I immediately downloaded it and then uh, you know tried to get through it. It is uh, it, it is a, a you know a few hours read. It's it's uh, some of it is a little bit heavier going. Um, can you summarize it for us? You know what this is. This is you know for the record, it's uh, consequence driven, cyber informed engineering. Okay, not security, but engineering. Um, can you talk about the methodology? What you know? What is sort of the big picture of of what you're describing in the book? Sure. Um, the book, which does primarily focus on trying to articulate the process of CCE, is very much engineering focused, as you can gather from the title. Um, it is different um, than normal cybersecurity uh, procedures and general risk mitigation strategies in the sense that it really does focus heavily on bringing engineers to the table. That said, it's designed to be a holistic approach, almost multidisciplinary in terms of the parties that are involved. Um, but one of the things we've seen at the lab and you know, just in critical infrastructure protection in the industry writ large is there's a tendency to overlook some basic differences between industrial control systems, operational technology, and the IT brethren. Um, so those differences are highlighted in the process, and the book itself is trying to provide not only a backdrop for how the process came to be, but uh, general guidance and information about the origin and philosophy. Uh, CCE is a process, is a methodology, but I think the core of it that we're trying to get at is we're trying to actually change how people think about cybersecurity for these systems. And in order to do that, we really have to educate on more than just follow these steps and these orders. Um, that being said, we do provide plenty of steps. There's also an appendix um, that go in a, goes through a hypothetical process um, with a hypothetical country. And there are some checklists at the back. So there's a there's a lot of material there for anybody who'd be interested in trying to dig a little deeper. Can you talk a little more about the engineering focus? How is the engineering focus different from a classic enterprise security focus? When we talk about industrial control systems, cybersecurity, we really have to take into consideration why these systems were created. In a lot of ways, they're designed to ensure there's certain reliability and cyber physical processes. Um, so everything gets tied to some degree back to that, that thought. So if you're looking at threat intelligence, for example, for industrial control systems, you always have to stop and say, okay, what is what could be the potential physical impact of exploitation of the system? Which is very different uh, than on the IT side because the consequences of some of these cyber attacks can be quite devastating. Um, that's, I mean, that that is at the core of its issue. Um, at the same time, Idaho National Laboratory, with a lot of their work, this is something they've been doing for a long time because they, you know, their history is actually in nuclear control system design and reactor design. So it's, if you start from that perspective, you see a lot of, um, I guess, commonalities in terms of the evolution of the thought process. There's requirements that we need in terms of making sure that our industrial control systems run safely and securely um, and, and reliably. And that's kind of, uh, I think, the, the meat of the issue. There's also um, general practices that don't necessarily align with IT strategies when it comes to security that are a little interesting. Um, things like as we've increased connectivity on the IT side, we've also increased um, visibility 
and our ability to monitor in a lot of ways that um, there's there's still a lot of debate on the OT side about whether or not that is an approach that should be adopted. Um, that being said, obviously, technology moves forward at its own drumbeat. And so there are certain things that uh, the industry on the OT side is really starting to uh, grapple with. How can you digitize? How can you increase connectivity and make and ensure that these systems remain secure? What you've said makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, the engineering profession, you know, most engineers are, are, yes, first focused on safety. You're building a bridge. Make sure it doesn't collapse. Um, and second, focused on reliability. How long is a bridge supposed to endure? You know, keep the lights on. I've got, you know, keep the keep natural gas in the system. I've got minus 26 out there behind me and out, out the window. I, I really want my natural gas to be reliable and my lights to be on. But the... What I've seen really is that driving connectivity is not so much visibility as efficiencies. Visibilities enable, uh, visibility enables efficiencies. And the, the tension is not between safety and security and, and connectivity. The tension is between, in my experience, between uh, connectivity that enables efficiencies and then the cyber threats that come back to safe and reliable operations. Is that fair? Is that really is that really what's going on here? Yes, actually, I would agree with everything you've said. Um, when I speak about increasing visibility, I'm I'm biased in my my viewpoint in part because that is a large focus of uh, an area of concern for threat intelligence. Um, so there's things that we push onto systems because we think if we can see them better, if we can understand the mechanics of how data is shared or how data is used, that we can somehow create um, an understanding of what normal is and then use that for anomaly detection. From an engineering perspective, everything that you're saying is spot on. There's a ton of efficiency that's gained. And that has been, if you just look at things like the energy sector as an example, that has been the... Uh, incentive for a lot of this innovation. You mentioned earlier in your introduction also that, you know, there is a methodology, there are steps in the methodology. Can you summarize the methodology for us? The methodology is broken into four steps. Um, honestly, it used to be more than four, but uh, we made a decision that four was probably uh, the best way to present it in a way that was kind of consumable without spending a lot of time memorizing each one of the individual steps. But there are four steps the first of which looks at prioritizing based on potential impact of cyber attacks. That's consequence prioritization. The titles are fairly self-explanatory once you get familiarized with the process. The thought there is that rather than try and boil the whole ocean, if you can focus a little bit, then you can develop a better mitigation strategies and ultimately take a little bit of the pressure off from doing the remaining parts of the process. In a lot of cases, when you're looking at doing some of uh, the more common assessment or widely adopted assessments right now in cybersecurity, they're really onerous processes. Some of these assessments can take uh, years and um, they're a full-time job. And after you finish one system, you go into the next one. That is not what we're trying to do here for so many reasons. One of which is we've seen adversary growth move so quickly that in order to have uh, any chance at all of keeping pace with what those that side is doing, we really need to hone in and focus on those things that are most damaging. That fits very well with critical infrastructure, as the name suggests. Being critical, there are certain things that um, can be really, truly devastating if we're talking about cyber attacks. 
The second phase, uh, systems and systems analysis, is looking at trying to understand what information exists on your systems, who has access to it, what data is necessary for an adversary to conduct an attack, and ultimately recognizing, as you mentioned previously, that some worst case scenarios when you start to peel back the layers are actually not possible via cyber attack. That might mean that they might be possible via some other means. For example, you know, normal kinetic attack or if somebody had physical access to your systems. But we're trying to really hone in on some of these cyber specific events. The third one focuses more on laying out the specific steps an adversary will take to target your systems. This is interesting because there's actually been a a lot of research in this area, understanding how uh, attack paths work, um, understanding what your attack surface is, uh, looking at attack trees. There's a lot of mechanics out there for that. CCE is different in the third phase, consequence-based targeting, because it starts not from how an adversary will get onto your system, but how they will intend to have their final effect. When we look at industrial control system cybersecurity, we often talk about attacks in in two stages. There's a lot of uh, work and some really great papers on that topic by SANS, if anyone is interested in reading them. If you look at the second phase, stage two of these attacks, that's where we start the conversation. So rather than do kind of a more of a traditional attack tree where you say, how are they going to, how would an adversary breach my system? And what would they do next? We say, okay, there's there's hundreds, perhaps thousands of ways an adversary can get onto your systems. But that's not the most important thing. Uh, if we put all of our effort into trying to mitigate every single way that somebody gets onto your systems, you'll probably use up all of your money, time, and resources, and frankly, energy to try and address this issue. But if you can take a step back and say, okay, what would be the adversary goal on target? And how can I best disrupt the adversary, the attacker's processes so that they have to change what they're doing or they have to pick a less substantial target or they have to go look at a different victim. All of that is the primary focus of three. And so phase three is, is um, it's an interesting phase in that a lot of people struggle with it because we've, we've laid the groundwork for, for so long, you know, in conversations about spear phishing and, and, um, you know, setting good passwords and making sure that your password security is valid. There's, there's this fixation in the industry a little bit on, on approaching it from the other end. And, and so it's a little bit disruptive to people to be like, no, I don't care how they got there. I care what they're going to do. Uh, the fourth phase, protections and mitigations, is all about taking everything you've learned through the process, really disentangling all of that data to some extent, bringing in people who may not have been part of the process but might have really great ideas moving forward, and then honing in on the best options to stop those worst case scenarios based on the technical targets identified in phase two and articulated in phase three. A lot of people ask questions at that point because for some they say, well, if I know the worst case scenarios, if I kind of understand what these high consequence events are in phase one, then why do I need to do two and three? It sounds like a lot of work. And it is a lot of work, but the problem or or the benefit, depending on your perspective of going through that process is that the solutions that you create in phase four are highly specific to your own application and your own systems. These are not generalized advice about how to secure assets. We're really looking at specific implementations 
and trying to apply the best solution for your case. Waterfall Security Solutions is the OT security company. In our latest report, we look back at 2020. We observe that the most important threats in 2020 were targeted ransomware, supply chain breaches, and cloud connectivity. We pull these threats together into four new kinds of blended attacks. Then we look at different kinds of cyber defenses, and we determine how effective these defenses are against each of these modern attacks. To access these insights into today's threats and what can be done about them, please download our report at waterfall-security.com slash 2020 report. I found Sarah's uh, response there surprising in one sense. Um, she said that, you know, the CCE methodology was was uh, designed specifically to be, in a sense, you know, faster and more efficient than other methodologies that are, you know, full-time jobs that take years. And by the time you're done the anal- analysis, the, the threat environment has changed so much, you got to question if the, the analysis is still valid. Um, that was a surprise to me because, you know, I was used to sort of more cursory uh, risk assessment methodologies that a lot of a lot of assessors will go in there they'll run some tools they'll figure out you know which you know how many patches you're missing and in 3 weeks have a report and they're out and i had thought that one of the the claims to fame for the cce methodology was that it was much more thorough especially in the system of systems analysis uh portion. But I guess, you know, I guess they've they found a middle ground between the, the you know, the paralysis of analysis for, you know, years long anal- uh, uh, risk assessments, you know, versus the uh, the very cursory stuff that, that uh, you know, I was thinking you need to do something more thorough. I would say for myself, if there was anything that stood out most uh, from her answer, uh, it was the, the, the third phase of her methodology. As, as she noted, in industrial security, we usually focus so much on prevention because we're dealing with very sensitive and, and dangerous machinery. Um, the way that she described uh, her methodology, it sounded a bit more like the way I imagine ITSEC people uh, approaching their systems, where instead of working so hard to prevent an intrusion, you anticipate, you expect the intrusion, and then you focus on dealing with it, which seems unique relative to what we usually talk about. It is, but it's not It's not as different uh, from what we usually talk about as, as you might expect. Um, in the IT space, I mean, let, let me back up, you know, let, let's use the terminology of the, the NIST framework. In the NIST framework, there's five large areas of... Uh, any kind of security program. There is the identify area, which has to do with planning and responsibilities and procedures. Identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. The IT philosophy that, that you're uh, uh, talking about there, a, a lot of IT folks will, will, yes, assume they have been breached and focus on detection, focus on systematically you know, looking at, analyzing, discovering the breach so that you can respond and recover to the breach. CCE assumes a breach, but their next step is not to set about detecting the breach. Their step is assume the breach in your mind so that you can apply 
the system of systems analysis, you can look at the remaining steps, the, you know, the next steps an adversary has to take in order to bring about a consequence so that you can design your systems so that the adversary has a very, very hard time taking those next steps. So you assume the initial breach, but the focus is still protection, not the, the classic IT focus on detection. The focus is on uh, assume the breach, but design the system to prevent the consequence in spite of the breach. I, I think I mostly understand what you're saying, but there's still the matter of, uh, if we imagine an attack in stages, um, usually when I think about prevention, I think about the initial stage. So the point at which the attackers cross the threshold of getting into into your systems. In this case, it seems to me, based on what you're saying, that we're not actually talking about that. We're talking about prevention at a, at a lower level, at a later stage. What implications does this kind of thinking have? I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is, um, you know, a lot of, of uh, you know, IT folks have recognized the difficulty of, you know, preventing any kind of compromise on an enterprise network because the enterprise network is exposed to the internet. We're pulling email, we're pulling web pages, we're pulling who knows what kind of nasty into the enterprise network all the time. And so this is why, in my understanding, there's such a focus on detection in the enterprise space, because you have to assume that, you know, sooner or later, you're going to be compromised, you'd better be, you know, trying to find that compromise. But in, you know, the, the, the buzzword in, 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 Sarah hasn't used the buzzword, but the buzzword in a lot of, of uh, uh, industrial security is defense in depth, layers of defense. And you assume that the outermost layers of your defense are most likely to be breached because they're the ones exposed to constant attack. And so what Sarah has said is, you know, like IT, yes, assume that you've been breached. But, you know, it's the IT folks' job to protect the enterprise network. It's CCE's job to protect the industrial network, which is deeper into the defensive posture. So, yes, assume that the, the enterprise network has been breached. Assume that the enterprise people are dealing with the breach. And design the lower levels of defenses so that... Uh, turning an initial stage breach on the enterprise network into a material and unacceptable physical consequence design your intermediate layers of defenses so that that you know that, that the process of turning the first step into the last step is as close as you can make it practically impossible so you mentioned uh, you know stage 2 of what i assume is the uh, the ics uh, cyber kill chain um, can you Remind us, uh, what is stage two? Where, do you, where, where are you starting? So the first phase of the SANS kill chain process, stage one attack is where you'll see a lot of the initial activity, per, perhaps on target, but even things before an adversary gains access to your systems. Things like uh, open source reconnaissance, the spear phishing campaigns, then um, once they have access, they found a weak link in the system, you know, they've, they've targeted someone effectively. Then enumerating the network, uh, building out their understanding of who, uh, who the systems, the users are, um, and then kind of maneuvering through it in order to access the operational technology or any segmented networks if there are any. So the second stage of the attack is more about what the end goals or the adversary would be. So there's specific actions that would be taken if you're looking for physical damage. There's 
other actions that might be taken if somebody just wanted to have a disruptive impact um, to operations, such as loss of view or loss of data. So that's where you'll see things where um, either denial of service on select targets and or, you know, wiping specific resources, which can be really uh, damaging to some extent, but not as bad as physical damage to a plant or a process. I'm still a little confused. Is stage two um, a set of activities or is it in a sense a foothold on an IT network or on an industrial network? Stage two, at least in the breakdown that they've laid out, is a set of activities. It's after an adversary has figured out what they want to do with the system and they move to that final attack process. We tend to lump attacks as one event. Somebody shows up on your system and in some amount of time, you know, 24 hours or later, they've uh, attacked a specific component or wiped a system. But a lot of times, especially with industrial control systems-based or operational technology-based attacks, you're talking about a lot of preparatory work. And so when you look at the threat intelligence and the data that we do have about how these play out, it's very common for people, for attackers to be on target on the victim's network for months. Um, All of that first part is them learning your system and learning how to hurt you. The second stage is where they maneuver into that that final attack phase. That is something that struck me when I when I read the the book. It seems very focused on the uh, the kill chain, and the kill chain, in my terminology, is a targeted attack. Somebody wants to bring about uh, you know some some undesirable end and is deliberately targeting somebody. You know, working working their way deeper and deeper into a, a particular system. Um, is there no concern in the in the methodology about you know sort of more commonplace attacks like um, I don't know um, malicious insiders or you know common ransomware coming in on a USB and taking over all the Windows machines without any sort of deep understanding of of how the control system works? But if you cripple you know twenty five Windows machines, you've probably crippled the control system. Is is there no is there no place in the methodology for that sort of commonplace stuff? There is still interest in mitigating those types of common attacks, as you call them. The interesting thing about the CCE process is if you start with the worst cases, you often end up mitigating some of those more, uh, a lot of people call them non-targeted attacks. I think that it's challenging to um, explain the benefit without having gone through it because um you know, this is something we've struggled with throughout the entire process of trying to explain this with people. Uh, they, people usually get it, organizations often get it after they've gone through a CC engagement, but it's it's difficult to change people's focus and say, it's not that we're not worried about ransomware, we are worried about ransomware, but this is a very special set of criteria and scenarios that we're looking at. So CCE was designed to try and address a gap that we saw, and we felt that there was a lot of effort um, and a lot of organizations that were focusing on trying to increase the resiliency of systems to attacks like ransomware or insider threat. So recognizing that gap um, and then trying to mitigate the the weaknesses we were seeing in our in our protection strategies, we really wanted to hone in on some of these worst case events. Um, If you talk to anybody about CCE, they'll tell you that it's not that we don't think cyber hygiene, as it's often referred to, is important. We do, um, but this is something else. 
So we don't want you to stop doing cyber hygiene in favor of CCE, but maybe if you have um, progressed in your uh, maturity and you feel like you, you've you nailed the best practices that we have today in terms of cyber hygiene, maybe this is the next step. So you mentioned in your introduction that uh, the methodology is intended to be sort of simpler and not as long, not as, as uh, you know, time-consuming as uh, some competing, you know, very lengthy methodologies because the threat environment is evolving so quickly. Um, So my question is, uh, you know, how often do you do one of these assessments? CC is designed in some ways to be a continuous process. Uh, We designed it with the idea that it would be iterative. So in many ways, once you um, have adopted the mindset, you can just continue to feed one of these assessments into the next. You know, a couple of episodes ago, we had a guest on um, talking, uh, give an analogy, a cybersecurity analogy, said, look, uh, think about breaking into a building. There's really only three ways into a building. You can come in through the roof, you can come in from underground, you know, the sewer system or whatnot, or you can come in through a wall. Are there, you know, is there a similar and analogous set of unifying principles to CCE that, that you can point out? Yes. CCE is fixated, especially in phase three, on the concept of attacker requirements. So even though you might be considering multiple outcomes of an attack, uh, multiple motivations, there's often only um, a few technical targets that will meet those requirements. And so there are natural bottlenecks that appear as part of the process. Much like the building where there's only a few entrances, there's only a few places in the system where these devastating effects can occur. And so once you've identified those, you can focus all your efforts tightly on mitigating and increasing the protections at that location. So something you've only touched on in passing, but uh, you know, I think if I recall right, gets uh, a, you know treatment in at least a chapter or two in the book is sort of non-cyber mitigations. Um, can, can you talk about that? How does that fit into the, the overall strategy here? Those are in some ways the silver bullets when we talk about the fourth phase that we're really aiming to identify. If you consider these attacks, there's physics of the, the attack themselves that are what we're trying to mitigate and eliminate. And so if you're able to come up with a physical sal- fail-safe then it is possible that it there's no you've ultimately taken the cyber option off the table for the adversary. There is no way that those devices can become hacked. In many cases, that's not always possible, so we have to also apply other options. One way to think of it is if you look at the NIST five functions, um, and starting with, we start with identify in that in that case with we're doing phase two, but the mitigations and protections we look at protect, detect, respond, recover. We want to prioritize protection-based activity first. And if full protection is not possible, then we start looking at detection, response, and recovery. Can we talk about scope for a second? Um, A lot of the examples uh, in the book are process industries, you know, power sector, um, you know, uh, pipelines, I imagine, are, are, you know, in scope. Um, You you know, you, you even mentioned, you know, I think military installations, you know, high high security, high consequence um, 
uh, installations. How about you know? How about manufacturing? I mean, let's say we have an, an automobile manufacturer. In my dim understanding of of that space, uh, a lot of what happens on the production line is done by robots. Robots are intrinsically cyber. There, to my knowledge, isn't a lot of physical mitigation that's possible there. You know, is is manufacturing is discrete manufacturing in scope? Can you talk about the scope of the methodology here? Yes. I think that the scope of the process, we really had envisioned for all operational technology or cyber physical systems. Um, That said, especially when you read the book, you do get almost the INL bias, which is we, we do have certain industries that we have more experience trying to mitigate um, potential cyber risk. Um, at the same time, manufacturing has a lot of the technologies that could be at risk from a whole series of events. So there are still physical type options that can be put in. And by that, that I mean, there, there may not be a vibration sensor like you might have if you're looking at a turbine genset. But at the same time, you might be able to put something in place that's not hackable. A discrete point, for example, that a monitor's temperature might be set up to a separate alarm system. It's very complex for the attacker to um, manipulate that point because it's not necessarily connected to the rest of the system. So depending on what the process is or what the item is that be- that is being manufactured, there's other checks that can be put in that try and limit the damage that can come from losing a whole batch of manufacturing to a cyber attack. So usually we're commenting on what the guest says, but in this case, Andrew, you actually asked a question that I could use some clarification on. Specifically, you mentioned that, uh, that say, the robotics involved in an automobile manufacturer um, are intrinsically cyber, and for that reason, it's difficult to sort of mitigate the, the physical security component. Could you explain just the logic there and why this uh, aspect of industry in particular would be um, prohibitive? You know the the uh, the book, and if you remember, uh, Andrew Bachman was talking about uh, physical mitigations. I mean, we've had the, the the folks from Connexus on as well, talking about the the security PHA review. The physical, you know, classic physical mitigation is an overpressure valve. If you have a boiler and you don't want it to blow up when you know uh, there's too much heat or too much, you know, you know, an exit is blocked, uh, you put an overpressure valve. It's a mechanical device. When there's too much pressure, it's physically forced open, and the pressure is released. You know, the steam is released, and you don't have an explosion. Uh, you know, or you might put a a clutch on a a turbine so that if the force on the turbine is so large that the the turbine's going to deform and break. Uh, the clutch instead breaks and you save the turbine. These are physical mitigations. And, you know, these phys- physical mitigations, the examples that that I heard in the, the, the security PHA review, they all really applied to process industries. Process industries are where what you're manufacturing is more or less continuous. You know, everything from mining to uh, pipelines to power to, uh, you know, oil and gas refineries. Um, it's continuous, whereas uh, something like automobile manufacturing, washing machine manufacturing, computer manufacturing, you're taking small pieces and building them up into bigger pieces. It's called discrete manufacturing. And a lot of that manufacturing involves robots. I mean, imagine, you know, the pictures you've seen of, of automobile production lines, big robots picking up, you know, the engine and dropping it into the automobile. And 
the thing is that I have a hard time imagining physical mitigations for um, automobile manufacturing. I mean, an overpressure valve is not hackable. It has no CPU in it. It does not matter how clever the adversary is. You know, they cannot do something to a computer or a program or some data to impair the operation of that safety check that prevents disaster. But the robots are intrinsically computerized. You cannot operate a robot without the computer. The, the robot is, in a sense, the computer. And so my question was, it, when you have these intrinsically computerized uh, operations, you know, does CCE still make sense? Because it's, it's hard to imagine a physical mitigation that, that would save a robot from, I don't know, hurting itself or something. Um, but, uh, you know, Sarah's answer was that you know, uh, manufacturing, discrete manufacturing is in scope for the methodology. And yes, there are physical mitigations that are possible, but, you know, some of them are still, you know, computers are still involved. You might have a, a vibration sensor on the robot or a, a stress sensor on the robot if the stress is too great. But that sensor, what I heard uh, Sarah say, you know, she echoed what I heard people like Joe Weiss say. She echoed, uh, you know, some 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 stuff that, that I've heard in other, in other people talking about, look, if you've got a computerized sensor that's that important, don't connect it to the network. Put it on its own little its own little space. Let it do its thing. If it senses that the stress on the robot is so great it's going to break something, then it can trip the power to the robot so that the robot doesn't hurt itself. But, you know, that's a cyber mitigation. But if you want it to be, in a sense, unhackable, it has to be, uh, you know, hidden away in a place where the adversary cannot get to the computer that's part of that cyber mitigation. So that that's that's a subtlety that, you know, I hadn't picked up in the, in, you know, it's a possibility I wasn't aware of in the in the discrete manufacturing space. You mentioned... Uh, a a focus on protection versus you know detect respond and recover in the NIST framework. Um, you know you are focused on engineering. I think the engineers get this. How does this go over with the enterprise security practitioners that that you're inevitably also interacting with? That is a very good question because in many cases not well. Um, and initially, I think that. In a lot of ways, the process is in direct conflict to some of what they think they're already doing. But it's it's really important that they recognize that this is, a, one, a, a process that requires their involvement. They are experts in their field, and so we need their, their um, consideration as well. But when you look at the mitigations, one of the things you see is if you can't put those protections in place, those engineering designs and controls in then the next parties are all of those organizations that um, are probably more on the communications and technology infrastructure itself. So whether that's the IT or the OT staff who are responsible for securing those networks, um, you need their their participation and cooperation for some of those other options. And depending on what the technology is, they may be lead because honestly, there might not be a physical control that's possible. One of the examples I like to refer to a lot is actually distribution management systems in the energy infrastructure, which often have, for example, um, smart meters that are now everywhere to monitor power usage of individuals or, and or businesses, industries. 
those are highly digitized systems. There's very few physical controls that we can put in there that would eliminate the risk entirely. So at that point, you're really talking about a mitigation and the options that you are putting in for those kinds of things. Some of them are procedural. Some of them are operational. Um, How many updates should you push at once in case there was a problem with the update and it was has been maliciously altered? Or um, maybe there's a way that you can redesign the infrastructure so that uh, you can segment sections of the AMI, the advanced metering infrastructure, if there was a problem there. But again, all of these start to look at response recovery options. And then on the detection side, if you can quickly identify an adversary on target, if you can recognize when malicious activity is going on, then what are your next steps? Can you talk about residual risk? I mean, you've said, let's look at, uh, you know, high consequence events, but you know, a truism of, of cybersecurity is that given enough time, money, and talent, an adversary can defeat any set of mitigations that, that we've put in place. Um, there's always risk left over. Um, can you talk about you know, how we identify that, how we manage that? I think that there's a couple of things that are important to keep in mind. The first is part of what we're try- trying to do here is increase the cost to the adversary to perform these actions. So while it is possible that you might not be able to fully mitigate the risk, sometimes attacks become less attractive because the amount of adversary investment that has to occur in order to be successful. The other part, which is is very complex, and it's one of the reasons why CCE is designed to be a process that's walked with an organization and their own internal experts, is that it's really not INL or, frankly, any organization's Um, outside organization's position or prerogative to explain to another what their risk posture should be. What we're trying to do here is educate so that people can have a better understanding of what their cyber risk is. And then that information can be integrated into normal business uh, making decisions. There's a lot of infrastructure and individuals inside the organization who can more clearly articulate what their company is most concerned about. Sarah gave a a very short answer. Let me say just a little bit more. Um, There's always residual risk. This is classic risk management. There's no way to eliminate all risk. Um, And so it's the business decision maker's job to decide which risks to accept. So that's that's classic risk management theory. Um, But I think the point that Sarah made about education here is vital because Uh, the threat environment continues to get nastier. The tools in the hands of our adversaries continue to get more powerful. And there are constraints on how much risk a business, certain kinds of businesses can accept. Critical infrastructure providers are expected to provide the important services to society more or less continuously. Um, Safety risks, there are societal expectations around how much, you know, how safe certain processes have to be. And so, uh, the education here is vital in terms of uh, informing business decision makers about how exposed they are to certain consequences that they've already decided are unacceptable, but they may not have realized 
that you know there's this this uh, an unacceptable degree of exposure to these consequences. This is uh, you know I think this this education function is, is a, a vital aspect of any kind of risk assessment, and you know I'm 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 happy to see that you know it's it's emphasized here. Something else that struck me when I read the book was, um, in hindsight, a surprising emphasis on supply chain security. I mean, this book was written long before the, or you know, the bulk of it, I imagine, was was cast in stone long before the uh, the Solar Winds Orion breach. Can you talk about about supply chain and and how it sort of it, it's almost prescient what the book what the book is saying? Can you talk about how that how that came to be? Supply chain security is a huge issue. It's almost impossible to guarantee that your systems are secure if you can't guarantee a secure supply chain. But there are certain things you can do, which is one of the key points we were trying to get across. I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Danzig's piece, Surviving on a Diet of Poisoned Fruit, but one of the core tenets in it is this concept that you can't be, you can't guarantee that your system will be secure. You can't even guarantee it will be secure upon arrival uh, after you've procured it. But how perhaps we can take a step back and consider engineering principles that mean it will still function as intended because we've put safe gaps in there that eliminate the effectiveness of a supply chain attack. If you know your hardware or your software is already compromised or could be, how does that change how you design these systems? It's not an easy question to answer, but I think it's an important one to put out there. And that's one of the reasons why when I talked a little bit about CCE being one portion of the lab's work, another huge portion is focused on some of these other problems, one of which is supply chain security. So understanding what you have in your systems, things like software bill of materials, hardware bill of materials, peeling back the layers, uh, and understanding how these components work together it's a core part of how you understand adversaries target these systems. Um, you know, supply chain security is scary in a number of ways, one of which is these are high value targets because as we've seen from recent events, if you're able to compromise at some of these lower levels of the supply chain, the number of targets you can compromise is quite significant. So there's a lot of attractiveness there for a cyber adversary who's trying to maximize their returns with limited um, or uh, small amounts of investment. The other thing that I, I read towards the, uh, you know, if I recall most of the way through the, the the main part of the book, you know, before we got into the appendices was, was training, a focus on training. Um, because the methodology, it seems, you know, it seems like uh, it's very thorough. And, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to, be able to be that thorough, I think, by by just reading the book. Can you talk about, you know, how do you become proficient in this methodology? Yes, there are a couple of different options if you're interested in learning more. Uh, one of which is this um, this training that is geared toward organizations that are seeking to partner directly with INL for an INL-led engagement. A lot of times, that being said, there, there's limitations on how many of those I know can do in, in a year or five years. Um, we're quickly trying to ramp up uh, the number of organizations and individuals that are capable of walking an organization through this process. But in the meantime, there's also been a lot of effort put towards a training called Accelerate which is designed to give individuals the tools necessary to return to their home orgs and conduct these kinds of engagements without an INL 
led uh, overseer. So this is great, Sarah. Um, you know, are there any other topics you want to hit before we before we wrap up here? Just one. Um, I think when you read a book or you hear about CCE, it sounds like a really concrete process with perhaps not a lot of flexibility to be applied to your own specific case. We talked a little bit about, wait, what if I, you know, what if my business model is primarily on the IT space? Or what if I don't have those big physical expensive processes that were described earlier? There's criteria, they're called severity criteria that you'll see in the first phase. They're designed to be flexible. We actually ask the organizations themselves to define what is most important to them before they start talking about worst case or thinking about what worst case scenarios would mean. It's there that I think there's there's actually a ton of additional value. And so I just wanted to highlight, if, if this sounds like maybe you're not a, a good fit for whatever reason, maybe you think that you... You've been in the industry a long time and you're not really sure where you're going, what you would learn from this. Or if you're you're new in the industry and, and you think that sounds really complicated, I'm not sure I could do this. That is a golden piece that can be used to start so many conversations inside your organization. Because I think security at its heart is protecting what's most important to you and your organization. And those are the conversation starters in that in that equation, in the severity criteria. So, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been, you know, tremendous. Um, before we sign off, is there a thought that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Only this. If you're interested in learning more, you can go to inl.gov forward slash CCE, because I think this is a, going to be a, a longer conversation and we'd love to have you in the debate. Andrew, something to take us out with? Yeah, just let me say a few words about the book. Uh, the book is finally available uh, on Amazon. You know, I bought the Kindle version. I downloaded it. Uh, I read through it. Um, it is a little shorter than I expected. I mean, this book has been anticipated for two years. It's a little shorter than I expected. It's a little more readable than I expected. I expected it to be very dense, very engineering focused, and it's it was actually easier to get through than, than I expected. Um, you know, the... The book, you know, for, for people asking where does the book fit in the ecosystem, um, it is going to be seen, I predict, as authoritative. INL has done a lot of very sensitive risk assessments. You know, the people that, that uh, contributed the concepts to the writing that, that Sarah and Andrew did, um, you know, these, these people are experts. And so, ex, you know, we should expect that experts from all over the, you know, many industries are going to be referring to this book for a very long time. So I would encourage anyone who is active in the industrial security space to to pick up a copy and, and to get through it. It's not as hard as, as I expected to get through it. Okay. Thanks to Sarah Freeman for speaking with you, Andrew. And thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast from Waterfall. Thanks to everyone out there listening. Thanks.